Welcome to Time to Pause with your host, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. This podcast shares inspiring and motivating stories from incredible veterinarians and industry professionals as they successfully multitask common career challenges and discuss topics relevant to the veterinary profession. And now, here's Dr. Kodaka. Dr. Sandra Grossman's connection with animals comes from growing up surrounded by all types of pets. She has her PhD in organizational psychology and spent 20 years working in the business sector as a market research slash business consultant. It was healing from the loss of her beloved cat, Moz, that brought her into the field of pet loss support. Dr. Grossman has spent the last 10 years supporting grieving parents who are anticipating or have lost beloved pets. Her work with pet parents includes group and individual support through in-person, telephone, or Skype sessions. And in addition, Dr. Grossman is a certified compassion fatigue educator and is passionate about providing education and support to veterinary professionals so that they can continue to enjoy the work they have chosen. Her work in this area includes providing workshops and sessions in the area of compassion fatigue slash self-care, teamwork, communication, and her concept of creating a compassionate practice. Dr. Grossman's latest venture is her 10-week online pet loss bereavement certification, a race-approved program providing veterinary professionals with useful and specific tools for helping their clients dealing with end-of-life pets or those clients who have lost a beloved pet. Please welcome Dr. Grossman. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Time to Pause. This is your host, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka, and I'm pleased to introduce Sandra Grossman, Thank you. Thank you, Kimberly. I'm really looking forward to talking to you and followers today. Thank you for being here. Just to give a bit of an introduction to your background and exactly how you got into this profession, because you are not a veterinarian. Sure. So this all started for me about 10 years ago. It was healing from the loss of my own beloved cat, Maz, and I needed support. And my background is in psychology. I have my doctorate in organizational psychology and was working for many years in the business field. But upon losing him and, and different things happening at that time, started out with me wanting to help other pet parents begin to heal from that loss. And I went back and got trained and certified as a pet loss specialist. As I began to do that and get into the different hospitals, I saw a lot of the challenges that people in the veterinary profession had, and I wanted to reach out and help because my background in organizational psychology dealt with things like conflict resolution and team build. So I went ahead and got involved in compassion fatigue. I got certified as a compassion fatigue educator and coach also, and have been doing this now since about 2011, 2012. And then last year, uh, upon doing a lot of end-of-life work with both pet parents and people in the veterinary profession, we came up with our own pet loss bereavement specialist certification course that is 
race accredited to help those in the veterinary profession know how to deal with clients who are either dealing with end-of-life situation with their pets or who have lost a beloved pet. It's so important because in 2016, we did an end-of-life pet loss study where we spoke with almost 500 people who had lost a beloved pet. And some really important findings came out of that. Number one, that three-quarters of respondents felt that the care, the emotional care they got from their veterinary team was just as important as the medical care that their pets received. And secondly, 87% of pet parents really were looking for some type of pet loss support, yet only about 15 to 20% found that support or were given that support from anyone in their veterinary practice. So we really realized how important it is for the veterinary professionals to be able to fill this gap and fill this need because there definitely is a correlation between that end-of-life experience that a pet parent will go through and their likelihood to return to that practice with either another pet or a new pet they may get in the future. Yeah, as veterinarians, we certainly are aware, not only veterinarians, actually, technicians, management, anybody who's in the, the veterinary profession, it's very difficult to lose a pet. We've all lost our own pet. You brought up earlier, you know, that when you lost your pet, there are also other things going on in life that compounds the grief of, you know, losing a pet. And so it can be absolutely multifaceted. And in the day of a veterinarian, you go from a euthanasia to a puppy, there probably is not adequate time allocated to supporting, even though we do our best, to giving all the support needed. And, and perhaps we're not even trained to give it in the right way. So having some understanding of pet loss is definitely important. So what I'd like to do, if you don't mind, you discussed several things. We could focus right now on your experience with pet loss and, and the work that you do in pet loss and also a bit about the bereavement course. I mean, I think the course would be an awesome opportunity for technicians and certainly veterinarians, but oftentimes time may be in and of itself a limiting factor to how much one can allocate during the day. But same way we do puppy socialization and different things incorporated into practices. Bereavement sessions in the evenings on the weekends might be something that a lot of veterinary hospitals may be interested in adding. And so maybe you can just explain a little bit more in terms of your experience, what it is that owners need most during pet loss and the different types of situations that come up with pet loss? Yeah, and, and there, there's a couple of things. And, and one thing I'll say is that it can be hard at times to know how to help pet owners, pet parents at that time because you'll never find two people who will go through loss in the same way. You know, it's a very individual experience based on our grief history and our personalities. 
But there definitely are some commonalities that can help. And so even if you're talking about end of life, anticipatory bereavement, a lot of times you have clients who are, are you see them really at their worst because they're getting this diagnosis many times unprepared for it. It comes as a shock, even though they know their pet's older or hasn't been eating or has been acting strangely. They don't think, and even when their pets are 12, 13, 14, it, it's kind of like this unconscious thing that they think they're going to live forever. And so what happens is it can almost be like a shoot the messenger. You have to give them this bad news. And a lot of times it's easier to be angry than it is to be sad. And it's like, how can that be? I feed them the best food. I, I take them for walks. I take them for his checkups. How could it be that he has cancer? And a lot of times part of it is just saying, I know this is so difficult and I want to let you know we're going to do everything we can to help you and to help Fluffy. You know, you've got to give them the information, but just to let them know that you're on their side, that you're going to be a team working as hard as you can to help the dog or cat in this tough situation. So yeah. that's one thing. Another thing, even in terms of the euthanasia, I often say that I think if people understood a little bit more about what euthanasia is and what it isn't and what are the options involved, because a lot of people, I've had clients come to me say, you know, oh, I could never decide to kill my pet. And I always tell them, you know, you're not killing them. You're ending the suffering. They're dying anyway. And it's a very calm procedure. And I explain about the sedative and how the heart just stops. And they don't know that. So sometimes if you're dealing with a um, client who has an end-of-life pet and, and they're starting to realize that it's not going to get better, sometimes talking to them about the euthanasia procedure and what the options are, whether they want to do it in a veterinary hospital and that a lot of big hospitals or even some of the smaller hospitals have grief rooms, letting them see the grief room ahead of time or letting them know that there are veterinarians that will come to their home to help them at this time. In terms of pet loss, and it is really hard, listen, you all have so much on your plate as it is to deal with your coworkers and, and to deal with the pets, to try to help them. And it's not necessary. You don't have to be an expert in pet loss, but even having some just basic tools, being able to have resources, a counselor that works with you, cards of a counselor that works with you, so that when that time is coming, either for an anticipatory bereavement client, you can say, you know, I've got this really great person who has a support group for people who are going through just what you're going through, or if they've lost a pet, or to be able to hand them. And I always say at, right after the euthanasia is not the time to talk about pet loss, but maybe to hand them a card and say, 
we know this time is really difficult for you and if you feel like you need some support, here's a card or here's a flyer of support groups that work with our hospital. Something like that can make such a difference. Another thing that's really important is following up. So after your client, and it could be you've worked now with this dog or cat for years and you've got a relationship with them too. And you've got your own grief with that pet. You know, maybe wait a week or two and call that client and just say, we just wanted to check in, see how you're doing. You know, and again, if you need support, we have someone who works with us. That means so much. I can't tell you what a difference that makes to pet parents, you know, or when you're sending a condolence card to not use those fill-in-the-blank cards, to actually have a card and have the people who worked with the pet put a little personal message saying an experience maybe, you know, I remember when Fluffy used to come in, his tail didn't stop wagging from the time he came in until he left. Something like that makes all the difference. And those are the type of things that are not only going to help your client, but make them more likely at some point, if they have another pet or get another pet, to want to come back to you. Absolutely. What do you suggest one do slash say? I'm sure there's not a quick answer to this, but perhaps some advice on those clients when the pet is either being euthanized or needs to be euthanized where their response is, I can't get another pet. I just can't go through this again. Yeah, and just even saying something like, I understand that. It's really hard right now. You've lost your family member. And, and now's not the time to think about that. You may at some point decide the more you heal to get one or you may want to wait. You know, I have clients who, I will tell you, who have rushed out to get another pet and have really struggled with that because they haven't had a chance to process their loss, to even, and so they're really kind of looking for that replacement or that thing that's going to take away the grief. And the only thing that takes away the grief in truth is working through it. You know, but I've had clients who have waited a year or two years. Most don't. The average, I'd say, is about like maybe four months to a year they'll get another pet. But just to let them know that's okay if you feel like you don't want to get another pet right now. Just hearing that non-judgment, that's okay. It's okay. I, I understand. Those words make such a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, being able to provide this type of support and time, I love the idea of having business cards and a relationship with somebody who can play this role for your practice. I'm sure people are wondering if they participate in your bereavement course, how prepared will they be to 
play this role in the practice or at other places? And how uh, prepared will they feel to be able to take on this role? Yeah, and that's something that we're really proud of. Because the course we have designed really provides useful and specific tools. So we take you through actual exercises that you can do with somebody who's dealing with a lot of guilt, who is dealing with a lot of anger. We take you through what's really important to know and how to deal with people in setting up a support group and doing an individual session with those people. You know, I, I think in part it's always practice, I won't say makes perfect because I don't think there is any real perfection in, in this, but it'll definitely give you suggestions, ideas to be able to help the people that you're working with in your practice on a day-to-day -day basis to have, you know, like I call it a grief toolbox, to be able to have one or two things to be able to use. And if you want to set up a group, I think, again, I mean, I remember when I first started doing my first group, and again, my background's in psychology more in the business sector. When I think of my groups when I first started compared to now, I'm, I'm much better. And the more practice you get, the better you will be. But one of the things that we offer, too, as part of taking the course is we do have a closed Facebook group where you could interact with people who are doing this work and talk about difficult cases or get resources. We also, as part of the course, you get two 20-minute consulting sessions that you can use. And we're always there afterwards as well if you want to talk to us. So I think you really have at least the basic skills to get started. Yeah. And I think that's an important comment that you made is that the more you do it, the more experience you have, the more in the flow and competent you'll feel. However, that's not necessarily a reason to start. There's always a learning curve with everything, vet med, vet tech <laughs> included. Yeah. Do you have any books that you recommend? Um, I do. I think that one of the best, if you want to call it, theories of grief, of pet loss, is uh, through Dr. Alan Wolfelt. It's W-O-L-F-E-L-T, and his Center for Loss. And, and he really doesn't focus so much on pet loss, although he does have a, a book or two, one being called When Your Pet Dies, is a really good book to start out with for pet parents, and then I don't remember the name of it as well, but there is a book on, on helping pet parents in his library. So, so it's a, a good start. Again, you know, I do believe books are good, but I think it's really the type of field where, where you really can't just read something and be able to incorporate it. It's about actually practicing it and working with it, and that makes a difference. But, mm -hmm. but those are at least, at least good resources. And his yeah. work in what they call companioning is something I really believe in. Yes, we are a very hands-on relationship-based profession. And actually, that's a good segue into what are the best tips um, for 
people in the industry when those relationships aren't optimal and there might be perhaps some, some conflict, misunderstanding or disagreement. What type of tools or strategies are best implemented to deal with conflict resolution? Sure. The one thing that I would say is if you realize that a lot of times people that you're dealing with are often, especially in an emergency specialty hospital type of setting, very scared. And when people are really scared, that leads, rather than showing grief or being scared, it leads to anger. And, and not to take it personally, and that can be hard, especially when you're working a 10-hour shift, you know, and, and you've got people who are just like taking it out on you. And, but just to realize that it's not personal, it's that they're scared. And so by having those lines, when I do my communication workshop, I do an exercise called You're the Expert, which basically takes veterinary professionals into remembering what it was they went through when they were going through an end-of-life situation or a serious situation, what their vets did that worked or didn't work and thinking about what they needed. And a lot of times, if you could think back to your own experience, because you all are the experts, you all have had pets that you've lost or have been in end-of-life situations, and to think about what did I need at that time? What did my vet do that really helped me? What did he do that I would never do as a vet? Things like that. The second thing is to work towards coming to a common goal. And when I say that, I mean coming to a common goal financially, emotionally, and educationally. You know, so you are going to have clients who really love their pets but just can't afford the radiation or chemo or even a lot of medication. And that's heartbreaking for them too. And to have those conversations and honest conversations, and again, part of it is practicing like what to say and how to say it. But having them tell you, look at I can I only have three, four thousand dollars. That's my max. Knowing that is gonna help you no, okay, so this is the treatment I can do. I can't do this. Maybe I just have to do palliative care with that client. Also seeing where they are emotionally. Do they have a lot of support? Is this somebody who has some emotional problems? And so you're going to have to be careful how to talk to them. And again, realizing that they may come at you harsher in a certain way. And then what degree do you help the client? A lot of times you know, you see, and I'll be honest, and, and this is, again, I'm talking about I lost my cat in 2007. And before I lost him, I lost both my mom and dad in a four-year period. I wasn't married. I had no children. I do have a brother who I love, but we're very different people. 
And so I didn't have a lot of support. And this cat got me through grad school and the end of a relationship and the loss of my mom and dad. So he was 17 years old and diagnosed with cancer. And when I got that diagnosed with lymphoma, it was like, oh, no, you're not dying. You know, and I spent, I think, in a four-month period, I spent about $12,000 in 2007. And it was horrible. I mean, he went through chemo, and, and I lost him anyway in four months. And I wish I had somebody like me to help not only myself as a pet parent, but to help the doctors know how to talk to me. Because I know it a couple of times they did try to say to me, you know, he's 17, you know, or, or we can try chemo. And I wasn't hearing it. All I was hearing was, I can't lose this cat. You have to save him. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, part of it is too realizing you are going to get those clients who want to do everything, even though you know doing everything isn't the best thing. And how do you talk to them and kind of let them know that? Or you may get those clients who you think, wow, I can really help this dog or cat, but they don't have the money to do that. And I know I've talked to a lot of you, and that's very hard and painful for you because you want to help and you're constricted by the financial or needs or of the owner. And what do you do in that case? So that's why I believe coming to a common goal, getting to a place where it's like, okay, we both agree that we're going to do this, but we can't do that. And that if there's a problem, here's how we're going to handle it. And sure, does that take time and more effort? It does, but not only does it help the patient, but it helps the client, and it helps you. You know, when we talk about compassion fatigue and burnout, part of it is the more you're able to help not only the patient and the client, that helps yourself as well. So I really believe in in working toward that common goal. I like the way you mention or use the phrase a common goal. I often say get on the same side of the table as them, you know, meaning you're working with them to come up with a decision and the best approaches. You're there to provide the the options, but then working with them in their financial, emotional time frame, etc. Um, it definitely is is the best approach. I think when people in the veterinary medical field can let go of the need to fix their way, which, you know, uh, we can do this surgery, we can do this whatever, and actually after providing that information, allow the owner the freedom to decide what the next steps are with their pet. I think that frees us from a lot of frustration because, you know, when we get vested, emotionally vested in needing to do things a certain way, then it's obviously very draining having to argue that point, having to force that point, having to 
uh, convince the owners when, as you said, in that particular case, it's for a variety of reasons might not actually be the right course. Right. And I think, yes, how we deal with the anger that comes at us and all these different things really do contribute to our feeling of burnout and, and compassion fatigue. Are there additional points that you'd like to make in terms of veterinary medical staff and people in the profession protecting themselves from compassion fatigue or different stresses? Yeah, I, I think one of the things I realized, because I'll tell you, you know, a lot of people say, well, do you like doing this work in terms of pet loss? And I always say, yes, I love it, because there's something very special about seeing a broken person begin to heal. But it can be very hard dealing with death all the time and, and loss. So I started to feel some of the symptoms of compassion fatigue myself. And in, in doing that, that's how all that, that part of it started for me. And I was looking at different self-care strategies. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is that it's not only finding, like, saying, okay, I have to take better care of myself, but finding an individualized self-care plan. So somebody can tell you, you need to take this yoga class or you need to take this meditation class. This really helps me. Well, you can try it, but if you are like, I, I can't stand meditation. I can't do it. I can't sit for that long. That's not going to help you. What may help you is, for instance, I like going for long drives when there's not a lot of people on the road, that is. So that's calming for me. I like going for long walks. So it's finding things that will work for you. And not only that, but not putting it, it could be like this big, it's like, okay, I've got to, I've got to implement a self-care plan. And it looks like this big bubble and it's like, okay, I have to do this and I have to do that. And it's like, stop, don't. Pick one or two things that you can do. For me, it started with, at the end of the day, when I worked all day and then did a support group, I would come into the home and, much to the chagrin of my cats, before I even fed them, I would get changed into pajamas. And I would put my phone on low and not answer any more emails, no phone calls, work-related, but just take that time for me. Then feed the cat. Spend some time with the cat. I like taking lavender baths or whatever it takes. But so that was one thing I did. Another thing, like I said, I like taking long drives with my favorite music. So I started doing that once a week. Just those two things. And then maybe like a month later, then add one more thing. Or if one of the things you're doing isn't working as well, then replace it. But don't try to change your life and say, oh, self-care, yeah, I'm going to do everything right. Because that's just the road to failure. Yeah, it's probably like they say in dieting, you know, instead of focusing on what you can't do, focus on one uh, or two little things that you can add. 
So, you know, exactly. the, the, the drive, the walk, the, the this. And then when you, if you find that it's rewarding and satisfying, it doesn't become so much of a chore and it's easy to maintain and something that is more of a chore uh, might slip to the side. So that's, that's absolutely excellent. Yeah, I know a lot of veterinarians, vet techs, managers get home and they're very tired. So the idea of doing a daunting task or going to the gym is really yeah. not high on their list of things to do. But, you know, I'm always amazed at how great I feel when I get, I have a couple of songs that I play on Alexa while I'm cooking. I know my son, my, my cats, dogs, everybody is sick and tired of hearing them because <laughs> they do the same six songs but I love them and by the time I'm done dancing singing and moving I'm yeah. totally in a different energy plane I really really encourage people to think of different things I also love the bath it's a nice time to quieten down I love podcasts I love different shows. So there are a variety of things that one can do. And again, you don't need to commit to an hour. It could be 10, 15 minutes and really make a big impact on how you end your day. I know that as a parent, my, my children are older now, so I do have a little bit more freedom. But a lot of women and men out there come home from work as being uh, a vet, vet tech manager, and then have to go straight to cooking and homework and baths and, and whatever, and it can be really exhausting. And so sometimes I've actually even suggested to some clients that they take 10 minutes uh, in the car a block away to listen to a podcast, play some yeah. music, you know, meditate or something like that, just so that you can actually get a break between work and, and that next job. That's um, a great idea. It definitely helps a lot just to have 10, 10 20 minutes to yourself. Uh, well, wow. It's been so fascinating hearing your suggestions for pet loss. And I think there definitely is a role for pet loss support in one way or the other at every veterinary hospital, mobile clinic, etc. Euthanasias are something that we experience on a weekly, if not daily basis. And having a resource that will ease the pain of clients and keep them bonded to you and hopefully keep them in the animal uh, realm at some point in their later um, life is, is really important. We talked about conflict with clients and compassion fatigue. Is there anything that, before we kind of wind up, you wanted to mention with regard to the workplace setting, ways of promoting a good work culture, good interactions, friendly collegial support systems? Yeah, um, you know, I think part of it is realizing that we're all on the same team. You know, we're all, we all come to this field, or I'd say 95%, because we love animals and we want to help. And remembering that, and I often talk about having one self-care buddy. So one person at work that you can go up to and make an agreement with and say, hey, you know, let's support each other. Let's check in with each other. If I'm having a bad day, 
I can come up and tell you about it or you can check in, in on me or maybe we could make goals that twice a week we're going to do something on our self-care plan. So even if it's having that one person that you could connect with and, and having the communication to be able to say rather than if somebody comes up and, and is like, I thought you were, you know, I thought, this, why didn't this get done? Or, you know, saying something like, maybe I misunderstood. Can you explain that to me? Because here's what I thought, but I, I want to do it better, or I want to be able to be on the same page with you. And again, that could be hard, rather if somebody comes at you not to react in anger. But a lot of times it catches people off guard and kind of lowers the temperature a little bit if you can do something like that. But the biggest thing, like I said, is I always recommend this idea of a self-care buddy. Having at least one person who you know is on your side that you can know is going to have your back and you have their back. And if they're having a hard time, you could jump in. If you're having a hard time, they could jump in. Mm -hmm. That's a great idea. I also wonder what we can do on a day-to-day -day basis. We're so used to, as individuals, carrying the weight ourselves. Whether it's not showing or not personally acknowledging an issue or that we can't handle it until that yeah. spring just snaps. Are, are there check-ins, debriefs? You know, I know sometimes we, when you walk down the street, you say, hey, how are you doing? How are things? Fine, fine. And it kind of comes out without you thinking what your answer really is, you know. You know, I don't want a situation where, you know, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, where yeah. we can actually set something up in motion to really have that person reflect on, on how they're doing and, and yeah. be able to, to report on it, that type of thing. So are, are you have any ideas? Are you aware of anything that seems to work in other places? Yeah, and there's a few things. Okay, so like I said, I, I do believe that self-care buddy is a start. Mm -hmm. However, sometimes we need more. I will come into a practice, and again, I'm not a licensed therapist, but I will come into a practice and do what we call a support circle. And so... There's, you know, maybe once a month, once every other month, a chance, and I, and I usually try to keep it to no more than 10 to 12 people, to sit around, and I always say it's not a bitch session, you know, so we don't want to just, uh, this one got me upset, but to talk about how we're doing, some of the struggles, to talk about things that we can do to alleviate some of this or to help each other. So I am a firm believer in these support circles. I think regular staff meetings, and I know depending on the hospital, that can be more challenging. But if you can't have a regular staff meeting with everyone, then to have team meetings. And I do believe to have a therapist to be able to recommend. That will work with you. I always recommend that, that therapist have some experience in either the medical or veterinary field and at least understand what 
compassion fatigue is and what burnout is and some of the struggles. So those are a few things that I would recommend. Awesome. You shared many practical tips for practice managers, veterinarians, and technicians. So I hope they will find one or two to implement into their practice. And um, should somebody want to reach out to you or learn more about what you do, what would be the best way of their contacting you? Sure. And, and so our next bereavement course is going to be starting on February 16th. And if you want more information on that or, or other type of support, the best thing is to write to me at info at petlosspartners.com. That's P-E-T-L-O-S-S-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S.com. We do have group discounts and certain discounts that apply for technicians. If you need pet loss support for your hospital, reach out to us. Thank you. It just occurred to me, um, because I know that you're in uh, New Jersey, is there any usefulness for remote bereavement sessions? Sure. I mean, um, what if somebody in Indiana, a hospital, wanted some support? Do you have a Zoom group through their hospital or something like that? Um, or? Yes, I work with a hospital in Illinois, and I still work with the hospitals in California. I do telephone sessions for their clients. But also, we are going to be starting, and I'm going to say it's probably going to be in March, an online pet loss support group that we're getting together now. Oh, brilliant. Sorry, one other thing that came to mind is how often do the bereavement courses start? You said February of 2020. Um, when, yeah. uh, what cycle would future ones be starting? So the, the next one will be in May. Sometimes we don't have an exact date, but it would be in May. And then we usually have a couple week break in between, and then we allow about five weeks for the next course. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. You've been very knowledgeable in these areas and kind of filling in some cracks and giving me, as well as I'm sure all my listeners, many ideas. I wanted to thank you for taking the time to pause with me today. Oh, you're most welcome. It's my pleasure. I think. You know, we're all in this same boat together, no matter what specific role we may have, and it's really important to support each other. I couldn't agree more. Thank you for listening to Time to Pause. Join us next time as we continue the conversation with industry leader, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. Make it a great day.